right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. Got an excellent hour-plus interview coming shortly with Tony Jacklin. Uh, We go into great details of his book that is out called My Ryder Cup Journey. It is available on Amazon as well as through the publishers Pegasus, Elliott, and McKenzie. Uh, he, man, he did not hold back kind of telling a lot of the stories that are within it. I still highly recommend the book. I could not put it down. I was reading it till 1 a.m., my wife kicked me out of the room, actually, because I was reading it on my phone because they sent over a digital copy. I couldn't go to sleep. I had to finish it. Just great little nuggets about all the people he's encountered in his life, stories about Arnie, Jack, and some of the people that made life miserable for him when he was you know, trying to make it out on the U.S. tour. And uh, I just greatly appreciated him telling the stories. I want to give a shout-out to Shane Ryan as well. His, his podcast, The Ryder Cup Run, uh, was a great inspiration for a lot of the questions that came uh, came his way, which I highly recommend that show as well. I want to give a shout out here in the holiday season to our friends at Elijah Craig. They've got introduced a new style of American whiskey, Elijah Craig Straight Rye. It's the first extra age Kentucky straight rye whiskey to join their award winning portfolio. It's made with 51% rye grain instead of corn, makes it a bit spicier than bourbon. I get aromas of dark chocolate with spices and a hint of smoke on the palate. You can taste rich baking spices and honey with its smooth oak influence. Exceptionally smooth, well-balanced, makes for a great Manhattan. As a matter of fact, Elijah Craig Straight Rye was named one of 2020's top 10 whiskeys by Whiskey Advocate. Only in select markets for now, but will be available nationwide next year, so keep an eye out. If you see a bottle, give it a try. You will not be disappointed. No Laying Up is brought to you by Elijah Craig Kentucky Straight Rye Whiskey, Bardstown, Kentucky, 47% alcohol by volume. Elijah Craig reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Without any further delay, let's get to Tony Jacklin. Okay, so the first line I read in the book was from a, a forward, I believe, but the first line says, Tony Jacklin changed the Ryder Cup forever. Many different ways we could go with that, but what does that mean in your opinion? I just uh, thought that Europe were uh, had a wrong approach to it. We had a, and I can only, I can only uh, make reference to the years I played, uh, you know, uh, a very British approach. What does that mean? Uh, it means um, it wasn't very professional, is what it means. If you're talking about sport, you know, I mean, you sports people. Uh, when I was young and competitive, it was about winning, and we went into so many Ryder Cups with the winning being an, a sort of afterthought, something that uh, it was more, much more important to turn up and, uh, you know, stiff up a lip and all that chaps, you know. Bravado, <laughs> yeah, I believe is the uh, word well, I read. Yeah, <laughs> well, bravado is, uh, it's false courage, of, uh, of course. And, uh, but this, uh, the British way was, uh, you know, it was more important to show up. And certainly it didn't matter much what you looked like. Um, Why does that matter? Because you talk about that a lot in the book. But I, I see where you're going, but I, for the listeners, I want to understand that. Well, I, I, I can only speak for myself, but I, I mean, professionally, when I played golf, I, I you know, I, I kitted myself out well. I, my shoes were clean, and my teeth were clean, and my pants were creased, and, uh, you know, I was on exhibition, um, as was my game. 
And so I felt it was always important to, uh, you know, give a a, a positive, uh, tidy appearance of yourself for, for your self-esteem's point of view. I needed that for my personal self-esteem. Uh, I needed to know things were right and tidy and what I had in my golf bag, that I had enough golf balls and my clubs were clean and, and on and on. It was just, uh, it was a professional way to go about things. But when we were in the team aspect of things back in the 60s and 70s uh, under various captains, these issues weren't always uh, that important to them. You know, we were, we were wearing clothes, uh, anything anybody would give us. Uh, I mean, I, one year, I remember in mid-70s, we looked like Lawrence Welk's band. I mean, uh, the jacket said braiding around the edges, and my God, and we had plastic shoes that were welded, at the, you know, tops to bottoms. And, and then you, you got opposite you know, your American counterparts, and they all looked like James Bond, you know. They all had these uh, immaculate suits. Uh, we were on the back of the bus on British Airways flying over here, not knowing who was going to pay for the drinks or whether we... It was unprofessional, is what it was. And, uh, I, you know, when I was uh, asked to be captain, which was only six months before uh, the matches in, in 83, I mean, clearly behind the scenes... They couldn't decide what they wanted or who they wanted as captain. That's crazy to think now, because now it's 18 months, maybe, that you announce a captain. Yeah, yeah, and uh, of course it was too late. Uh, I mean, I didn't find out, believe it or not, to, to 15 years after, that it was Bernhard Langer that in, insisted that we have a captain that was more of age-wise part of as the team was. I mean, historically, we'd had captains that were a generation or more older. And, you know, he wasn't necessarily in touch, personal touch with the players from from week to week. But, of course, you know, when they, when they approached me, I was angry and uh, I'd been left out of the team in, in 81 in favour of Mark James, who behaved abominably in, in 79 at the first European match at the Greenbrier. Tell us about that, him and Ken Brown. Well, yeah, they got they got levied the biggest fine in the history of the PGA up to that point when they got back home because they were just being uh, disruptive, you know, bloody-minded. They didn't turn up to meetings on time. They would wear the wrong outfit or a magazine in front of the face when they were supposed to be being photographed and look away when the camera came on. You just, like schoolboys, I mean... Uh, was it a protest of sorts? I guess. I mean, I don't... I, Mark James was was 25 years old. I, I'd won two majors when I was 25 years old. You talk about being immature. I mean, he was a, a pain in the ass, <laughs> a big time. And actually, we all felt felt sorry for J John Jacobs because, and no, nobody more than me, because I mean, he didn't really know how to react to it. It was, uh, I mean, personally, I'd have sent him home. Uh, but anyway, having gone through all that, in um, in uh, '79, which uh, 
I was 13th in the money list in 81, not an automatic choice. James was 12th, I think. And despite uh, my sympathy for towards Jacobs, for up to 79 matches, he chose James in front of me. And I was miffed at that, and I thought, well, stuff you, you know, and I, I, I just walked away and forgot about Ryder Cup, and, of course, that same year, Seve was arguably the best player in the world, and uh, they didn't want him on the team either. So, you know, back to the sort of British, uh, you know, if you don't want the best player on your team, uh, in the team, uh, in the world, on your team, I mean, what's it all about, <laughs> you know? And uh, so Seve was uh, as, as, as miffed as I was, and we turned our back on it, and, and literally... As I said, uh, they came six months before the match, and my first reaction was to say, "Can't get stuffed," <laughs> you know, uh, because uh, you know I just I just not thought about it anymore. They were a shower, as far as I was concerned, a total shower. They couldn't run a raffle. And it's important to note that to this point, Europe or Great Britain or Great Britain and Ireland had won one time in the history of the Ryder Cup in however many years to this point, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I was there at Lindrick. Uh, 57. 57. as a 13-year-old, and that was when I decided golf was going to be my life. I, first time I'd saw, seen the greatest players, you know. Uh, and uh, anyway... I didn't. I bit my tongue, which is pretty, pretty good for me. We're not going to do that today. <laughs> and uh, I said, "Look, I can't answer your question. Uh, I need to sleep on it." And I was staying with a friend of mine in Leeds, and uh, went back, had a nice dinner, and uh, chatted and thought about it. And uh, I went back the next day, and I said, "Look, I'll do it." on my own terms I said I need carte blanche to do what I want and well what do you want you know and I said well I want I want Concord uh, which is no more or less than the Americans are traveling you know to, to, to travel for the listeners that's supersonic jet that was flown in, in that time period yeah uh, some of our listeners are young and may not know what Concord is <laughs> uh, well that's right and uh and I said I want, you know, uh, first-class clothing, Savile Row suits and all the rest of it. And uh, I want a team room where we can be together and nurture some camaraderie together and be, you know, just for the wives and the players, not for anybody else, not for caddies or agents or members of the PGA. Or I, I just want us to be together. And I want everything in that room that they will need. Food and beverage, you know, fish, uh, uh, pasta, meat, whatever anybody wants, and TVs so they don't have to go anywhere. And uh, they kept saying, okay. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> you weren't expecting yeses to these, questions, to these demands. Well, you know, I said, if you, if you agree to giving me all, all the things I want, I'll do it. And then Lord Derby, who was the president of uh, uh, the PGA, just backing up a little bit, you know, Samuel Ryder, when he uh, instigated this match, international match, the, the PGA was one entity. The club professionals and the player tournament players were all one. Uh, we split that that 
broke up in the late 60s. and Same with the PGA Tour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We followed suit uh, to what happened in the PGA. We had a players division and we had the club professionals. So Derby was uh, the figurehead. He was Queen's cousin. And he was hovering around to see what uh, my answers were and to the questions. And So I said to him, now, what about Savvy? Uh, and he says, well, you've ac- accepted the captain's uh, job. Is your problem. And, of course, Savvy was anything but a problem to me. somebody I admired and, and you know, I was... I was past my best as a player, but he was he was carrying a torch for European golf. I mean, he was as good as anybody on the planet, and he had this amazing charisma as well, a good-looking lad. Won the Masters in 1980, so he was international superstar already, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So he was my first uh, uh, target, and uh, we, we met at the... Prince of Wales Hotel, I think he was playing golf at Birkdale within a week or so of uh, me accepting a job. And we had breakfast. We met for breakfast, just the two of us. And uh, he vented, <laughs> as I expected he would. And I said, uh, Savvy, I agree with everything you said. And, you know, his manager during that period was looking for appearance fees for him if he came to tournaments. Well, if he came to a tournament, he would put 50% on the gate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course the European tour didn't know how to deal with it they never sat him down and said, oh, with his manager and said now how can, how can we move forward together and you know make this thing work instead they just banned him from, from Ryder so he's going on and I said sorry that's all behind us I'm, I'm, I'm in charge and I can't do it without you and uh, it's as simple as that. You know, I admire your uh, career, what, you, what you're doing. You're in the middle of it all. It's fantastic. I don't want to do anything to spoil it, And uh, I, but we need help. And he said, OK, I help you. Uh, he, 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 his English wasn't that fantastic at this point in time. And uh, basically... Uh, you know the rest history. I didn't get any captain's picks that that year because it was we were already in the season. So we went twelve right down the money list, and we incorporated all these changes. I got my team room. I'd been over. Uh, Jack was the American captain. Palm Beach Gardens was his home. Uh, I came over. We identified a team room. Got everything the way it needed to be, and. Uh, we we came over on uh, Concord, uh, which was pretty special, I can tell you. Tell the story of how that got funded, though. How did that... Well, the, I, I don't think when I demanded it, they had a clue how the hell they were going to pay for it. But what what happened was they got some wealthy uh, golfers in, who were interested in Ryder Cup, business people, and uh, they put them on the plane with us, and they paid a premium... Uh, for that. Uh, British Airways obviously did their bit. I don't know what the numbers were, but uh, the plane was full. And, uh, you know, uh, apart from the team, it was just these benefactors of golf, especially Ryder Cup. And we all landed at uh, Palm Beach uh, Airport and Jack and Barbara were there to greet us. And 
uh, hot as hell it was, I remember. And, and we got the thing started. In, in, in those days, it finished on a Saturday. We settled into this sort of team. It's the first time we'd ever had a circumstance where we were sharing time. All the years I played, we would, in the evenings, you would go off with your wife uh, and another couple to a local restaurant, you know. Once you knew what time you played the next day, this was kind of no way to, to... Get your arms around the whole team, yeah. Exactly. So the team room worked beautifully, and we played very well. I mean, the players, I didn't do any more than take care of them, wrap them in cotton wool and do and show them that I cared about how they were being treated. And they responded. Just They responded like professionals respond. And before we knew where we were, it was, you know, Saturday afternoon, and, and we're, God, we look like we're going to win this thing. It was absolutely inc- uh, amazing. That being said, there were half a dozen of the European press cleared off to Disney World. That's uh, an amazing story. I mean, bloody, I can't, I can see it now. They're all coming back with their Mickey Mouse bags, having been there all day. And we've, you know, as a team, we've gone with a, within a fraction of getting it done. And we're all gutted. They got back just in time to, to, for the presentation prizes. It was dusk, you're getting dusk. And, and I thought, what a shower. You know, I saw them all coming back with their bloody tails between their legs. It was, it was shameful. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> and, you know, we were we were a miserable bunch, I guess. You know, we're on the dais. I have a video of it on the, uh, all looking pretty down. And uh, it was Savvy who, who said, hey, you know, don't be so sad. You know, this is this is not a loss. This is this is a victory for us. This is the best we've ever done in America. And he wasn't wrong, but you know, he pointed, and we took the positives from it, or he was he did, and and as we had to beyond that, you know, once it was all said and done, and we flew back home and digested it. Uh, it, it was a hell of a performance. In my in my own case, I I looked as you do as a golfer, uh, you weed your garden, and I looked at the changes I'd made. You know, the concord, the team room, the, uh, the things that, that I'd done to improve, and I I, I thought they all worked well, and uh, we just bided our time till two more years that flew by. And uh, uh, the team was uh, very much uh, similar to to what we had in '83. We had another couple major champions in there. It was a it was a golden time for for Europe, you know, uh, with the likes of Langer and Woosnam coming on, Alassabel, all major winners, and uh, uh, we we got it done in front of the home crowd at the Belfry, which was historic, you know, 28 years. It had been since uh, since Lindrick, and of course Bernhard was 28 years old, and he said, "I remember him saying to me, that's a long time, as far as I'm concerned.' And of course, it had been a long time for me too. Uh, you know, being a 13-year-old at uh, at Lindrick, seeing all those uh, 
those great players. No Laying Up is brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf. Our favorite rangefinder is now on sale for Black Friday. Insanely discounted price of $55 off. The NX9 is the highest selling slope rangefinder on Amazon and trusted by over 100,000 golfers, PGA professionals, and most importantly, everyone here at No Laying Up. That's their words, not ours. Uh, but the Precision Pro Black Friday good news does not stop there. Precision Pro is proud to announce the next big thing in golf technology. It's the long-awaited Ace Smart Speaker, a groundbreaking portable Bluetooth speaker that combines audible GPS distances with premium quality sound. You can slap it right on your cart. It easily connects to your phone, and you can listen to your music from whatever streaming service you're using. It's not just a speaker. It's truly an audio caddy experience providing uh, beyond providing standard and slope-adjusted distances, it will display and announce yardages to the front, middle, and back of the green. The Ace also has what Precision Pro calls the Baba Booey button, which activates fun golf shot celebrations immediately after your friend's swing. From the Strat Boy, the Narc, and the C-Suite, we all trust Precision Pro to help us find the green. Now you have two great options to choose from the game's newest golf speaker or one of golf's most trusted rangefinders available. The NX9 Slope and Ace Smart Speaker are available on Amazon and at PrecisionProGolf.com or ask for Precision Pro at your local Dick Sporting Goods or Golf Galaxy. Let's get back to Tony Jacklin. You know, we're not that far removed from, I believe you you write in the book that in 1969, uh, or excuse me, what what year was it that there were uh, cars pulled up to the 18th green? 69. 69. At, at Bur- is that Burkdale? Okay, I didn't realize That's that. right. Yeah. Around that, uh, the clubhouse is like a, a, a ship, you know, it's, it's like the bridge of a ship. And, and it was so damn dark. I was playing with, uh, I think I was playing with Neil Coles against Trevino and so and it was you, you just you know foursomes and four ball in one day. It was it's tough over in England late September. The, the days are very short, and uh, we all messing around. We all missed little parts on the last hole, but the, we were putting on the under the headlights of these cars coming through. But uh, and that was the year, of course, of a concession that Jack conceded the two footer to. Uh, for the first tie in history, which was let's let's do that story. I know you've told that many many times. It's been referred to many times, but I think for the for the sake of history on this podcast, we'd love to love to hear the story because it goes back to at least the previous hole as well, being a, a huge curveball that was thrown in the match. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we were all square through fifteen, and I lost sixteen, which was par four. Seventeen was a par five. We both hit long irons into the green, and I was maybe fifty feet, and Jack was. 25, he was half the distance. And I hold this 50-footer. I mean, <laughs> I mean, obviously I was trying to do it, but I mean, at that stage, anybody that plays golf knows that these things don't happen uh, when you most want them to. And anyway, it went in from 50 feet. The crowd went bananas, and uh, Jack missed his putt. We were all square. And... Uh, uh, ironically, Brian Huggett, who who, became, who was a future captain, not a very good one, I put in the book. But uh, we'll get to that one too. <laughs> yeah, he he was uh, he had a five footer, four five footer on the last screen, and he heard this roar. He thought I'd beaten Jack because the last time he'd seen a scoreboard, we were all square. He didn't realize I'd lost sixteen. Anyway, he held the putt like a, a tenacious little sod. He was. He was. He was a, a tenacious player, Huggett. And he sort of broke down on, on Captain Eric Brown's uh, jacket lapel. Oh, we've done it, we've done it. And, and Eric said to him, no, 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 that was Jacqueline just getting even. And, of course, um, 
reality stepped in as it does. And, and Jack, anyway, Jack and I, by this time, we were walking to uh, 18T Old Square. And we both hit three woods off the tee. Good, good shots both uh, in the fairway. And I was herring off ahead of him. And he hollered after me, Tony. I waited, he caught me up and put his hand on my shoulder and we started walking together. He's looking at me and says, are you nervous? I said, Jack, I'm bloody petrified. And he said, I just thought I'd ask because if it's any consolation, I feel just the same way you do. And I mean, it's, I'm telling you, uh, it's not where you want to be. I mean, your teammates are all done. The matches, are, the outcome is reliant on on our game. and. Uh, we, I, I hit a good uh, eight iron second shot. It went about 25, 30 feet by the hole. Jack hit it in there closer than I did, maybe 20 feet or so. And I put it up two feet, uh, 20 inches to two feet. That's his reckoning, not mine, and I marked. And he had this putt to take it all, to win the Ryder Cup. And, and I'm stood there saying, uh, well, you know... Uh, just just basically waiting it out and he hit this damn putt he hit it four and a half five feet past too far past for me to say or suggest good good you know I mean it was out that was out of the question so now I'm thinking I'm still thinking TJ now whatever else happens you're gonna have to make this putt you know that that was my focus and of course he steps up and like a great player, putter he was, he holds his putt. And in the doing of it, as he picks up, uh, goes to pick the ball out the hole, he picks my marker up f first. He did it all in one sort of... And, I, and the realisation came, you know, I don't have to make my putt no more. Uh, you know, relief, uh, uh, call it what you will. Uh, but uh, that was the, the the concession, and he knew I'd won the, the Open a couple months before. He knew Britain had a a new hero, if you like, and he didn't want to see anything happen to spoil it. And and he said, I don't think you would have missed it, but I would never give you the opportunity in these circumstances, which was... Uh, and that was... Um, that's the only time I put pen to paper uh, to a fellow pro uh, and just, uh, you know, I just said uh, your gesture on the 18 was something that uh, will, live me, will live with me forever and uh, it was a great moment of sportsmanship, of course and uh, we built a golf course uh, uh, 15 years or so ago not too far from where we're sitting and uh, it turned out to be successful, the concession uh, uh, and uh, and of course, they instigated the Nicholas Jacklin Award at the Ryder Cup this year, which was a great honour, as far as we're concerned. And it'll go on in perpetuity. And uh, kind of nice to nice to know that. Well, the relief on your face in that in that image is is pretty. Uh, it, it's it's apparent to, to viewers. You know, it's it's the kind of putt that only something bad could have happened, right? Of course, you're expected to make it, but yeah, it's impossible no. not to think. Don't screw up, no, <laughs> even no, for a champion right. like yourself. Yeah, yeah. I've had a few seizures <laughs> since then. I can tell you that. Uh, so you know, not to have to make it was uh, was obviously a relief. Well, as long as we're on Ryder Cups from the past, I needed you to take us to 1967, which I believe is your first Ryder Cup. Uh, going up in a plane 
with Arnold Palmer at the 1967 Ryder Cup. Tell us about that. Well, he just bought a new Learjet, and uh, we were in Houston at uh, Champions Club, the the club that uh, Jimmy DeMerit and uh, Jackie Burke built and owned. And we were hitting balls on the range, and he's done. Arnold just gets finished. Okay, who wants to come for a ride? You know, and like a schmuck, I put my hand up. George Will, a Scottish teammate of mine, was next to me, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. And uh, Bobby Halsell, he was the pro at Royal Birkdale. He was over there with the group. And, uh, and Jimmy Demerit, he was uh, he was an aviator himself. So we all go off. It's only around the corner of the airport, and uh, we g- climb into this. Uh, it wasn't big, you know. Lears are not very big. You can't stand up in them. And uh, but it was pretty luxurious, and off we went. And before we knew where we were, we were sort of going sedately over the golf course, and you could see where we'd been half an hour before hitting balls and there were still some of the guys out there and you could recognize their swings we were were pretty low on this thing and I thought this is lovely and all of a sudden we he turns this thing around and we go we're going flat out at about 500 feet you know and, and everything's flashing by like it and then he pulls it back and we're going straight up and spinning. And, t- and he's got this thing turning around. And I'm looking d- d- up the aisle towards well, the pilot, because he's up there. Arnold is with his uh, pilot. Daryl Walsh was his pilot. And he's laughing his ass. He's, la- he's roaring laughing, you know, looking back at us. George Will peed his pants. I mean, it, it was horrendous literally Peter this is not oh, no no yeah, no no like no no he had light gray trousers on that were dark gray around the crotch <laughs> area and uh, it was unbelievable anyway I don't do too well uh, you know on roller coasters and things like that but I was so glad, glad to get down in one piece for a start and we got we went back to the club uh, after and there was all hell let loose. I mean, it was all the, the aviation people were on the phone. Daryl, his pilot, was on the phone. Yes, to you know, apologize. And Arnold, to his eternal credit, he went and grabbed the phone off Daryl. And uh, he was taking, he took the rap, you know, for, for what he did, because he knew if Daryl lost the license, he was screwed. And, uh, and Demerit wrote, a groveling letter and anyway it was pretty for a 23 year old making his Ryder Cup debut it was something to see the king having to grovel <laughs> like he, he, he did but uh, how the hell he got away with that I'll never know I, I, I know I don't want it to to ever happen again it was um, a good one time experience it was remarkable and, and of course Hogan was the American captain that year he was um, and I think it's fair to say that was no love lost between Arnold and and, and Hogan. You know, What's the, the origin of that? I've always heard that. Yeah, really yeah, yeah. I think it's a respect thing. It was like, uh, you know, Hogan never minded putting people down. Like back in those days, you could choose what ball you played. 
this this would be interesting for some of the younger people, but the British ball was 1.62 in diameter and the American ball was 1.68. And I think I'm right in saying that they weighed the same in ounces as they measured. I wouldn't be certain about that bit. But you got choice whether you played the small ball or the big ball. That was when when you played in Scotland for the Open. You could choose, but in America it was always, you know, it had been the big ball. And I think in those days you got the choice. I think I'm right, and, and uh, Arnold made an inquiry to Hogan as to what ball you know, they were recommending playing. says, <laughs> who said you're playing? You know, like, that's the kind of put-down he, he he didn't mind, uh, and he would, you know, he would enjoy that. I heard he always referred to him as Palmer, too, which was kind of a little put-down. It was one, of the, one of the really funny things that week, uh, for me, again, 23 years old, and there was American players, Johnny Pot was on the team, Gabriel, God love him, it became a dear friend. Uh, but they were scared to death of Hogan coming out and looking them practice. Oh God, I hope he doesn't come and look at me. You know, because he was, you know, Hogan was it. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying, I'm, I never, he was perfection. I never saw anything like it. I never saw anything better and I got to play with him a couple of years after that and of course he didn't look at the where the ball was he was looking at the player and of course in Gay's case I mean he had that bloody corkscrew swing uh, you know he knew his, his swing was anything but perfect you know he, he, was, he was he was digging a living out of this game d- despite the fact that he had that agricultural kind of swing and uh, he he, he he didn't want to perform much in front of Mr. Hogan. It was, it was, it was funny. It was really funny at the time. So tell me about what what's it like playing with uh, with Arnold Palmer in a Ryder Cup? And I don't know if this is the same time to ask about you, the story you tell in the book about playing the Canadian Open with him and Jack as well. Yeah, no, it was that, well, it was that year. Yeah. It was the same year. So the Canadian Open had been a little earlier. Uh, we're now in September, and and Canada was sort of in midsummer. We're in Montreal, and of course, in those days, they only televised the last three holes. Um, actually, a lot happened that year. You know, I actually did the first Hollywood ever televised mm-hmm. in '67 as well, playing, w- winning the Dunlop Masters at Royal St George's. So within weeks, we're in at the Canadian Open, and. Uh, Andrew and Palmer and Nicholas and the last round and the 16th hole, the first hole that they're televising was a 265-yard par four. And Arnold's got the tee, and at the end of the tee, there's one of these big old grey, old-fashioned cameras, TV cameras. And Arnold goes to tee the ball up, and he said... Jack comes up behind me and he says, watch him when the red light goes on. And so I'm watching this and all of a sudden, you know, the red light, bing, he knows he's up, he's on. And he starts giving it the snorts and the, you know, the shirts out of the back already. And he he rips into this driver and 
265 was about, you know, pretty much the limit for then with that old Bellata ball and stuff. And he gave it that, you know, that Palmer... Uh, the helicopter finish. Helicopter spin at the end. And, of course, ball goes right in the middle of the green, you know, and another couple of, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, and I just smiled at Jack, you know, and that was it. You know, it was, uh, it was the John Wayne bit, if you like, you know. I mean, that's why, that's what made him so great, and that's why everybody loved him. It was... Uh, uh, something I'll never forget. I love that story. That's a, that's fantastic. A quick break to check in with our friends at Roback. We have been talking a lot about them. We even put some of their stuff in our store. We just can't keep it on the shelves. That's the only issue we're having with it. First of all, their performance polos fit so much better than your typical boxy polos. Their, their four-way stretch is next level. The material's super soft, stays wrinkle-free. The founders went through over 20 iterations of the collar alone to ensure it keeps its shape but doesn't get in the way of your golf swing. Second, their performance Q-zips, game changers when it comes to falls, fall golf. You can wear them on the golf course, off the golf course. Uh, great transitional style. Third and lastly, Roback's performance hoodies, the stretchiest, softest hoodies in golf. I get away with wearing my Roback hoodie two days in a row, hoping I don't run into the same people. They may be the most, the softest and most comfortable performance hoodies in the game. Uh, their hoodies are popping up all over the golf course and also all over the NFL. They've been gaining traction Big time. With it being the holiday season, it's time to hop on board. So next time you see someone rocking the Roback Dog logo, give them a little subtle head nod. Uh, use code NLU at Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. 20% off polos, Q-zips, hoodies, and tees with code NLU. They just dropped some new hoodies and Q-zips that are the perfect holiday gift. So go check them out now and get your holiday shopping done with Roback. Let's get back to Tony Jacklin. So Lee Trevino. During the 1975 matches, he's drinking during the matches. Is that accurate? Is that is that? Am I telling that story? Remembering that right? From the yeah, book? I remember <laughs> vague. But I mean, Barnsley used to do that as well on our lot, on our team. Barnes, Barnsley would mark his ball with a can of double diamond. You know, <laughs> back in the UK. I mean, he was he was notorious uh, for it. Not and not Lee, but I mean, you know, laterally. Lee uh, Lee doesn't drink, as far as I'm aware now. I think he packed it in uh, long, long ago. But uh, no, there was uh, there was stuff going on that uh, wouldn't happen today. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And then Jay, along the same lines, Jay Herbert, the captain of the 1971 uh, team, he had some some issues after the after the. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he he couldn't. I don't know what the hell he was talking about when he was making his victory speech. I mean, he was so, he was so bombed he couldn't put two words together. I mean, he was, you know, I think he was invited to sit down, uh, you know, after about five minutes. So, uh, <laughs> nobody knew what the hell he was trying to say, but. Uh, it was it was a different time and uh, it's fun to look back and uh, remember those times that was uh, changed a great deal over the last uh, 50 60 years and I've seen most of it well that's why I wanted to get as many of these stories documented as well as you know we're, we're talking to the guy here that's responsible for changing a lot of that and so much of the Ryder Cup one that the fact that the Ryder Cup went on as long as it did when it was so one-sided is is somewhat of a miracle and there were many times where it looked like it, it may not go on especially after World War II um, and, and whatnot and you know all these all these things that we laugh at now. No, you're right, and but you know, individuals uh, stepped up to the plate uh, um, in between uh, between the war and uh, 
uh, there was a, a friend of mine at, uh, at Royal Birkdale stepped in in 65 and I mean they couldn't find a, a sponsor uh, for it. He, he said, what, what are we talking about? You know, what, what kind of money? He said, £25,000, they said. He said, uh, get on with it. And that was Brian Park, and I got to know Brian very well. I lived on the Isle of Jersey for tax purposes uh, back in the 70s, and Brian was there, and we played a lot of golf, and, and Graham, his son, and I still, we tweet, and he, he tweets bits on Ryder Cup, and, and obviously he's very proud of what his father did, and rightly so. But but for Brian Park, it wouldn't have happened that year. And there was an American, I think, did the similar thing. Robert Hudson. Yeah, Hudson prior to that. 1947. Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, here we go. And then, but then you got to 77 at Lytham, where I, I won my Open, and Huggett was the captain. And... Uh, Weisskopf got picked for the team, and <laughs> and Tom and I are great pals. He was one of my closest friends, still is, and uh, he's been through a tough time this last year. But uh, he decided it was more important for him to go to Alaska and shoot a ram uh, with curly horns uh, than it was to play in the Ryder Cup, which was a foregone. Uh, confusion if you like um, and so the writing was on the wall is, is basically that was the first time anybody as, as far as I'm aware got picked for the Ryder Cup and didn't didn't bother showing up that prompted uh, Jack after those matches at Lytham to write to Lord Derby who was uh, as I said earlier the head of the PGA and suggest that Europe be um, be involved in the fray and a it, the, another very fascinating thing, and I don't think I spelled this out so much in the book, but then there were only Spain. That I think in the 79 match, which was my last match, first European match, turned out to be my last as a player, there were only two Spanish players, uh, Antonio Garrido and Sevi. Uh, maybe Canizares maybe was in that, but I think so, there was only two. And they were the only country represented. This year, this very year, uh, now, 2021, there's been 14 European nations represented in the, in the Ryder Cup, you know, with Victor Hovland and, and the, the Danes now and the Swedes. And, so it, it's pretty amazing to have witnessed that. You know, we involved Europe, but there were only there was only one European country that that, that was at that standard, uh, you know, right? That, that had players that were able to represent a country. So uh, there's a lot of water gone under the bridge since uh, since that first match in '79 at the Greenbrier. Is there water under? Is it water under the bridge now with with you and Brian Huggett after the uh, after the, uh, <laughs> the we, t- we we talk. I mean, <laughs> what happened there? Well, he was he was bloody hopeless. Is what it, what happened? I mean, he was he, he changed personality. He became aloof. You know, he only just spent time with his wife, and we would invite him to you know, let's all go and come and join us for dinner. No, 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 you boys do this, that, the other. And then, of course, 
never talked to us about pairings or who was with who. I ended up playing with Eamon Darcy, the Irishman who actually held the the putt at uh, Muirfield Village in 87 to mean we couldn't lose. Seve won, Seve hold the winning putt, but but uh, Eamon hold the one four-footed down the hill on that 18th green against Crenshaw. I'll never forget that. Anyway, Eamon and I were, were pals, but, you know, we didn't, you know, there was, it was nothing more than that. You know, our golf games didn't necessarily complement each other and so on. Anyway, we lost. And so we go out and support the matches behind, you know, on, I uh, can't remember who we were watching. Hug it. What are you doing here? Why aren't you on a practice ground? That's, what are you talking about, you? You know, little up, pip, you know. I, I mean, it, it, it was insulting and spectators everywhere. And I said, we're supporting the team. You know, he shouted off his mouth. So I, you know, I told him in no uncertain terms what I thought of him. I said, you know, this is not a bloody football team. I said, I don't know what what you're talking about. You're out of order. Anyway, uh, I I was out of the team. He dropped me from the singles. I won the Open at this place. Uh, And I'm actually proud to say I'm an honorary member of the club now. But... uh, he was useless, he, honestly, and he got—he actually got a gong for it. He got the M- MBE for, for, for a job well done. I mean, that's how Britain works. It's <laughs> extraordinary. And uh, anyway, I've seen him since, of course, and then it was after that that I had my successful run as captain and made the changes and uh, we we talk you know uh, uh, but uh, his captaincy was something that uh, I'd rather forget that being said it was part of history because it prompted Jack to write the letter had the letter not been written it wouldn't be the European Ryder Cup and that's what I, I wanted to spend so much time on that is this this series of follies that you experienced as a player from shoes falling apart to not tra- travel, no team, all of these things contribute greatly to all the things that you were responsible for, for changing. And then so you talked about some of the demands you made, you know, going into 83, but now you're rolling into 1985 and you have time a time period now to really implement some changes, including how the team was selected and whatnot. Tell us about that. I wanted to know that going into 85 that I had the best 12 players available. Obviously, with the format we have now, you can hide players the first two days. But ultimately, everybody's out there on on Sunday. You just you need to know you've got the 12 the best. So I wanted an extra captain's pick. Actually, I wanted, to, I wanted two, but that would have been too controversial. And I remember the great um, scribe, Peter De Bruyne, at the time, who was a dear friend. He's long gone to this world now, but he said, let him pick them all. What the hell is he going to do? He's not going to pick his brother-in-law, you know. <laughs> anyway, I got, I got my extra pick, and uh, actually, and of course, it was historic again because I picked Jose Rivero, a Spaniard, who was fresh blood, but he'd won a tournament earlier that year at the Belfry where we were playing. 
and he was t- more or less tied in appearance in uh, prize money with Christy O'Connor Jr. Anyway, uh, it was a toss-up between those two on the money list, and because Rivero had won there at the Belfry, I came down uh, for him as a captain's pick, my extra pick. Christy, well, he never spoke to me again for 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 year. Well, it was two years beyond that that my first wife passed away, and it was that was the only time he talked. He came up and said, "I'm sorry," and he walked away and never spoke to me again for another two years till I actually picked him as a captain's pick. It, it, the Ryder Cup had become such a unbelievable. Everybody wanted to be in it. It was a force. It was. A, it was. A, Absolute, especially for Europeans. Christie was cut to the quick. I mean, he, he really got, he was hurt by it. And I was sorry about that, but I would, uh, you know, I, I, I was out to feel the best players I could. Not make friends, yeah. And it wasn't about being, you know, I, I, well, that being said, I wanted to be everybody's friend, but I wanted the best team out there and, uh, you know, uh, Anyway, we we got it done, and um, uh, in front of the home crowd at uh, at the Belfry, they looked after us uh, admirably, and it was we didn't get off to the ideal start. You know, we were behind, I think, after the first series, and uh, uh, Craig Stadler missed a little putt on the 18th green, uh, and personally, I was you know apart from being shocked. I thought, good, well, I wouldn't want that to happen to anybody. Anyway, by the time I got to the team room, they're all jumping around like oh, <laughs> Savvy's going, yes, now, this is the difference, this is the change, this is what we needed, you know, to happen. And they're all going bananas, you know. And it was, actually, it turned out that we were able to, uh, from that point forward, take the upper hand and uh, and get it done. But, uh, Oh, we're on the roof of the damn house. It's quite a scene. It's it, it's a scene that you know it's not it's it hadn't happened yet in this event's history, right? And, and for people that are my age, it is we're very used to seeing European celebrations, but it, it, it's interesting to look back at and hear the stories of you know all the things that have happened prior to this happening. So going back, you you know outside the Ryder Cup, your your name you know comes up in. U.S. golf, uh, much more frequently. I guess it's not a com- It was not a common thing for Europeans to play. You know, most of their golf in the United States in the '60s and whatnot. What do, What do you remember about that time period? Why were you? Why did you come over to the United States to play? And, and how were you, How were you greeted by by certain people out on tour? <laughs> well, I you know, in simple terms, I wanted to be as good as I could be. My I made a promise to myself when I was in my teens that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. Uh, give it my all and uh, I wanted to be the best player in the world I didn't think about majors I wasn't thinking about anything money I wasn't thinking about anything other than being the best player in the world and I knew if I wanted to do that I'd have to be the likes of Nicholas and Trevino and Palmer and all these guys and uh, you know no heroes I never had a hero my closest if I did, would be Hogan, which he was a generation gone, you know. I mean, he, his playing days were. And so I came and got my tour card in 67 and, uh, you know, pitted my 
myself against the weather best place. And I loved America. From the moment I first came at the Carling World Tournament in 1965 at Boston, Massachusetts, up there, I just loved it. Elvis Presley, bloody big limousines and Cadillacs and... You know, the, 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 America was it, as far as I was concerned. I wore bright clothes, I liked to dress up, and I didn't mind showing off. <laughs> you know, and uh, I was made for it. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. Uh, it was the best time of my life. You know, I got married in 66. I got the call from Augusta National in... in um, Early 67, when I was playing golf in the Far East and we were traveling out there with my my wife, we were on a sort of three-year honeymoon we went on, and we stopped in at Augusta. I actually led the Masters uh, after eight holes in the third round. I was playing with Bobby Nichols, and he's down. He's still down the coast here now, and he said, he says to me, he's often said to me, I thought you were going to win that deal. <laughs> of course, I'd never done, I'd never won anything. I was, you know, 23, I was... I was on the learning curve and ultimately choked and shot 77 last round in, in the Masters. But that same year was the year I hold in one. I won the Dunlop Masters, got my tour card, won Jacksonville the following year in March, playing with Palmer the final day and done January. I mean, that was bigger than the tournament, being able to get it done playing with the with Arnold, because it was... Uh, and the first European to win since the 20s in the United yeah, States. Yeah, that yeah. was a very uncommon thing at the time. No, that's it. And then IMG, I befriended a guy from South Africa called George Bloomberg, who was a friend of uh, Gary Players. And uh, George was a multimillionaire who tra- traveled the world playing golf. And he was a director of IMG. And he suggested, you know, that he talked to somebody with regards to representing me. And, of course, that somebody was Mark McCormack. And it was during the 68, around that time, that uh, I went with IMG. And uh, (laughs) I wish I'd never met Mark McCormack or George Bloomberg. I mean, that's the uh, long and the short of that story. But uh, essentially, you know, McCormack was an opportunist. He was going global with not just golf, but with fashion and hair salons. Uh, he, he represented all sports, Jean-Claude Kielinski and Jackie Stewart and motor racing. He was, he was, you, you only need to have lived through the last 50 years to see what he, what the, the IMG became. Uh, and, he wanted me in Europe to attract other European uh, sports people. And I was busy back and forth six, seven times a year playing the US tour, still based in England. I had a wonderful club affiliation with Sea Island in Georgia, which he priced me out of there. Uh, you know, uh, he could have easily got me a condo there and I could have earned it over five years, but. They were determination to, to not do that. They cancelled that contract because they couldn't afford me. And uh, I was left, you know, back and forth again, travelling and uh, never had a base here uh, during that time. He and all of his influential young people that passed through 
him were all instructed to say, Jacqueline he belongs in Europe. And of course, meanwhile, I had my window of opportunity was uh, ended up being a lot shorter than it, it could have been. Um, he, he ran me ragged, and uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wise enough to um, to walk away. Uh, when I won the Open, uh, I wanted to go to a beach and contemplate life somewhere. I met with him the day after I won the Open. And he said, you've got no time going to any beaches. He says, you've got to go to America. And I came up here and played four weeks and missed four cuts. I was open champion, right. you know, but I was... You're exhausted. Yeah, ex you're exhausted. Totally, and totally spent. And uh, if you don't turn up mind and body together, I mean, anybody can turn up. But if you're not there with your mind, if your mind's not on it and your inspiration's not there to do, to do what you're going to do, you're never going to. It's never going to work. Uh, so you know, I my dad was a keen golfer. He was a, a truck driver, uh, ordinary guy. Didn't know about stuff like this. I had nobody close to me that did. I was flying by the seat of my pants. And by the time it came to 1972, um, you know, I'd had enough. Although I was exempt for 10 years over here because of my US Open win, I'd had enough and I went back to live in, uh, in England and uh, it was the worst thing that, you know, could have happened. And then, oh God, I could go on, but uh, they changed the financial system, went to decimalization in and everything doubled overnight. Uh, the Labour government got in and uh, taxes on worldwide income were 83% for me. And I went to live in this island of Jersey, uh, which is where uh, Ian Muslim has a home now. But, um, you know, that I'd lived there for eight years. That wasn't an ideal place. Uh, 70,000 alcoholics clinging to a rock. Uh, you know, not the, the most ideal spot to uh, perform international sport from. And then I lived in Spain for eight years, and it, it just changed. Uh, I should have been over here when I uh, won my majors. There's no question about that. Well, on a different note, too, you detail in the book how your financial luck also took a uh, you had a bad turn in the in the eighties, I believe, as well. The, the, Lloyd's names was uh, was a, a new thing for me. I, I, I'm a, maybe a bit younger than that. For our listeners, could you explain kind of how that? No, well, Lloyd's of London was one of the biggest insurance. Uh, all the politicians, Winston Churchill, they were all Lloyd's names, members of Lloyd's, and essentially, you could if you could show. A hundred thousand pounds, you could underwrite two hundred, and it was it was something that um, people did. You know, wealthy people, wealthy people did. Well, uh, IMG put me into Lloyd's. I didn't. Uh, you know, they took care of it all, and essentially. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. You don't, you just because 
the, the underwriting under this company or corporation made a lot of money. You have a good spread. Sure. You, so, and I I took a stop loss policy out, figured out how much I could afford to lose in a given year. It wasn't much. It was like twenty thousand. I could afford to lose, but beyond that, this stop loss thing. Anyway, the whole thing fell. You know, and when you signed to be a member of Lloyd's, you know they took everything, and it took uh, some years to uh, to come to, but it was exactly more more or less exactly as I turned fifty, and I lost everything. They did take your house. They took. I lost everything and more, and had to borrow money to uh, to pay it off. It wasn't the ideal way to to start a senior career. So then, what do you what do you do next? Uh, you know, I don't know how the hell we survived. Jack helped. You know, I moved over here, which is what I should have done forty years before. Uh, we lived in Jack's guest house for three months. I represented PGA National on the senior tour, and uh, I got a club deal thanks to Tom Crow from um, can't remember it's. The company's name now, but he was kind enough to give me a club deal, and I played senior golf for four or five years. But it was, I was playing thirty tournaments, and I wasn't exempt, by the way. Despite having won two, uh, two, let alone two Ryder Cups, but two major championships, and all this old guard that had put the senior tour together, the Bob Golbys and Gardner Dickinsons and 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 the like, did everything in their power to keep foreign players out which are some I, names we hear keep trying to keep you out in the 60s as well well they yeah they were a, a mean-spirited bunch who and essentially they were the ones who never traveled you know they didn't need to go outside of america but it wasn't the nicholas's and, and johnny miller's and the trevino's they were all great i mean if you think you can play come uh but it was these uh you know, as I say, the mean-spirited ones that... Uh, and then you'd play... They wouldn't even talk to you going around. They wouldn't say a word. Who who was it that was within earshot of you and just said out loud, I don't think foreign players should... Was it Dave Hill? That, yeah. yeah. Oh, he's, well, when when Beeman was... When we were going through the split from the, the PGA and... The, Dave Hill sat in a chair next to me. He stood up in the middle. He said, I don't think foreign players should be allowed to play here. I said, sit down, you miserable sod. You know, I mean, On what he, basis could you uh, Yeah, but withhold? I mean, that's the, way they, that's the way they thought. They thought they were clever, uh, saying things like that. And, uh, you know, they were... It, it was hurtful. It was, uh, it was a very, very tough, uh, tough time. Not a time that uh, I can look back fondly. That that being said, it toughens you up. You know, it made me mentally strong. It helped me make m- make me mentally stronger. I mean, I remember driving to the airport after I won the U.S. Open by seven shots uh, in Minnesota. I had to shine a, uh, share a bus with my wife and Gardner Dickinson. Never said a word. That's unbelievable. Never said a single word to me. Because that's one thing I've found at, at any level of from pro golf, amateur golf, there is a sense of at least today 
camaraderie or in terms of you know you root for each other you congratulate people you know you you you, you want you want to play you know the other person play good and you play better and it just it did not seem like you were greeted that way for, for I, many I, many years I, I, the, the week after that u.s open i saw howie johnson he was another beauty howie johnson he says oh god damn you made some putts last week didn't you i said howie I won by seven. <laughs> Why the hell can't you just say, well, you know, it, it, it's not in them. It wasn't in them to be able to do that. Mean-spirited is, is an understatement. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was rough. And uh, I wasn't the only one that was getting it. You know, Bruce Devlin, Harold Henning. Gary uh, Player was, we were all getting, Bruce Crampton, we were all getting the same treatment from the same, uh, Dan Sykes, what a horrible bloody human being he was. I played with him at Doral and I'm leading the tournament final round, teeing my ball up, minding my own business on the ninth hole, which is like an island green. He says, I played with Tommy Aaron here last year and he was leading and he went in the water. Clunk in the water, you know, who knows? Um, one can only think that uh, they, did, they did it for fun or thought it was uh, some kind of fun. I don't know, uh, I, I don't, uh, uh, it's uh, sad. So you you win the 69 Open Championship uh, at Lytham, you win the 70 US Open at Hazeltine, 1972 Open Championship at Birkdale. And you've won two majors, yet reading and hearing your quotes uh, over the years about that close call, it's kind of heartbreaking hearing how much that had an effect on you. Where does the story of the 1972 Open Championship begin for you? Is it on the 71st hole, or does it go before that? Well, it was at Muirfield. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Muirfield. Uh, uh, not Birkdale. And uh, obviously Muirfield is the, you know, was the, the American Jackson Muirfield was named after, after that one. It was his favorite links and I, I think it might have been my favorite of, of, of all the links as courses as well but I, I went there playing uh, you know I'd been playing some good golf I finished third in the championship at Birkdale in 71 when Trevino won and Mr. Lou finished second um, I finished fifth in 70 you know that's when I went out in 29 at St Andrews and birdied 10 and the rain came and got washed. So I was in the mix, you know, for the championship all those years. But 72, Muirfield, I was inspired. I was playing well. We were all staying at Grey Walls, that little hotel right there on the course. Uh, I remember Princess Margaret coming in that week and uh, spent some time with everybody in the, ho in that, uh, in the hotel silly things I remember the rooms didn't have TVs in them but there was a big TV lounge where we would gather but Trevino got Willie Aitchison his caddy to buy him a TV and he stayed in his room we never saw Trevino in the hotel he stayed in his room uh, and you know he had his own tally which he gave to his caddy after the event but uh, you know I, I got off to uh, great start and I was right there I mean we were Nicholas had won the first two tournament majors of that year and I played with Trevino in that final round 
and we stood on the first tee, and, and this is Trevino saying to me, he said, this is re remarkable what I'm going to tell you now. He says, well, one of the six in front of him and the other seven in front of Jack, and he's out ahead of us, obviously. He's out. He says, well, he's, he might beat one of us, but he's not going to beat us both. And, you know, because the Grand Slam was on the line, we get onto the ninth tee, Trevino and I, and Jack's on the eleventh, uh, on the twelfth tee, and he's past us both. You can look this up. That's the beauty of today. You can Google. Anyway, we both eagled the ninth. I eagled on top of Trevino to get back uh, ahead of him, and then of course. Uh, that was when Trevino chipped in. I played with him the last two rounds. He chipped in five times. And, of course, the, the final straw was the straw that broke this camel's back. Uh, he did it on the 71st hole. I was in front of the green in two. He was over the back in four. Uh, he walked away with a five. And I made six. I three-putted and uh, missed a two-and-a-half-footer. I didn't par the last, I bogeyed the last hole as well, which meant Nicholas jumped in in second place. And it was a, it was a sort of, I can't say a career terminator, but it was a, it was a heavy blow to take. You know, I looked for everything like I was going to win my third major, uh, second open. You know, it had been snatched away. And uh, I, I never accepted that luck played you know, that bigger role in... Uh, I just thought if it was guts, determination, and just keep your head down. And But I never saw flukes like it. Like, you know, I mean, on two, one, one of the occasions, he sculled his bunker shot, and it, it went in, hit the green and then jumped in the hole on the fly. That was on, I think, 16 on the third round. And it came... I was on the green in two in the third round on the last hole, he was over the back in two. He said, I'll just come up out the high rough, bonk, in again. You know, just stuff. And I'd witnessed it and thought I'd played through it and got, and then to, to sort of go casually on that 71st hole over the back of the green like he's, you know, sort of half trying. And he congratulated you. In, on that hole, right before the hole was even over. Some, something. Uh, I mean, I, I don't. I wouldn't hear and I wasn't out for congratulations. I, did, I wasn't getting ahead of myself. I was trying to stay in the moment, as you 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 must in those circumstances. But it was audacious what he did, and of course it was uh, it was the end of my major run. You know, I I. Uh, I I won tournaments. I won you know tournaments every year, but, but through the seventies, but uh, never threatened in a major again. Which is, you know, I knew that majors were the only really significant events that you'd be remembered for, and uh, so it it kind of uh, scuttled me for for that. But uh, uh, you know. One of the quotes I heard you said somewhere is that you know that a, a, a part of you died that day, or it, it knocked the stuffing out of you. And you, you were just for the listeners' sake, like you were 28 at this point. I mean, that that's that's what is kind of yeah. And it was also though, it was also 
at the end of this sort of five year worn out back and forth back and forth you know 20 25 trips back and forth from the UK to America doing my thing and I was I was about ready to for that to end I mean I it was no way to be living you know we'd start a family by then I'd got a couple of kids you can't schlep them everywhere you, you go either you know I mean life was uh, becoming more comp- far more complex than it had been when I was uh, 23 and uh, um, you know just having that sort of honeymoon uh, period going around the world uh, with my with my wife uh, we had uh, we had need to settle down and uh, you know more stability had to come and and I was being uh, courted by uh, John Jacobs at the time, you know, it was the beginning of for, for the European tour. They started to go, and so I was able to get a couple of thousand pounds, which was what the first prizes were then, uh, to, to go to play in Germany and Italy. And uh, you know, I won the Italian Open in '73. I won the German Open in '79. I won the Swedish Open in in the mid 70s and you know it was easier to play in Europe and you know I had my comfort in my house to, to, to go back to at weekends and uh, I, I had a life but it wasn't where it should have been you know it should have been in America and it would have freed me up a lot with uh, the British media were t- tough you know I mean I think it's well known how the tabloid press is uh, over there, and I was subject to that, obviously, because I was in the public eye. Every, you know, I was in London every bloody weekend, except in opening something, doing this, doing that. Um, it was like being in a goldfish bowl, you know, living there, whereas, you know, the, the vastness of America can protect you from that sort of thing. And then another uh, part of the book that was, I guess, surprising to me to learn and, and part of, I wasn't familiar with in your life is what happened to you in the late 80s in terms of what you touched on there with uh, your wife Your wife died very suddenly and the British tabloids become a part of the story. You meet your next wife all in, in a very uh, a time period where you also detail that you were uh, understandably in a very, very dark place. And uh, I'm wondering what you're comfortable telling us about that time period. Yeah, well, you know, again, you don't know. You, nobody knows what life's going to throw at them. And uh, we were living in southern Spain at uh, at Valderrama, where you know they're still playing events there. Um, and uh, we lived there for uh, I lived there for eight years, and it was 1988, and I was out playing golf with Sean Connery, and. Uh, couple of other friends. Sean lived up in Marbella, just up the coast, and often came down. We played a lot of golf in those days. And uh, we got the news on the golf course that something, there'd been an accident, we came in, and uh, she'd had a cerebral hemorrhage driving the car just outside the gas station where she'd filled the car up and uh, she was gone. Uh, Like, she was 44 years old, never sick a day in her life and all of a sudden gone 
three kids, all teenagers, were off at school, different places in England and uh, in Spain. You, you bury the dead within 24 hours. So, uh, you know, my my life was upside down. Sean uh, Connery took uh, the helm and took care of a lot of the stuff. Um, we we got Vivian buried the next day. The kids went back to school, um, the various pl places. But I mean, our world was totally upside down. And um, took uh, th two, three, four months, maybe in the summer. It came summer of uh, of that year. I went down uh, to to uh, London to play in the Bob Hope classic which is you know hope lent his name to that tournament over there uh, met a waitress there and had a fling with her um i didn't know how old she was or what was you know it was just uh, i was getting over this incredible uh earthquake that had happened uh in in the april and uh, maybe been a, a, dating this girl for a month or so and I went back home she came she was there with me one of my neighbors was giving a cocktail party that night literally just around the corner and uh, I got invited we went round there and I she had a sister staying with her from Miami which was Astrid and as soon as I met Astrid I, I knew that was it, you know, that's, uh, and uh, I said, you know, I invited her to stay and not go back to Miami, put this girl back on an aeroplane to London from Gibraltar, took her to, <laughs> she walked straight into the office of the Sun newspaper when she got into London and told the world about, you know, this affair with, uh, with Tony Jacqueline. Well, now I'm with Astrid, and she had two children with her, and I said, you know, we, we need to stay. You need to stay here. Well, of course, it didn't take but 24 hours, 48 hours, that the press was sitting on my doorstep waiting for a story. So we cleared off, uh, Astrid and I, we had some good friends close by, we told them, and we went up into the mountains near Malaga and checked into a hotel. And I kept ringing every other day, you know, what's it like? Can we come back there? Oh, for Christ's sake, don't come back yet. It's headlines every day in the, in this, in the tabloids. And uh, anyway, uh, George Best, who was a great, uh, soccer player back in, in the day uh, he came out and said that this girl who I'd taken who I'd, I'd had the affair with uh, he knew her when she was 14 years old and she'd been in he met her in Thailand she was with some <laughs> anyway long story short I'm off the hook I, I, you know all of a sudden I, we come back home and uh, all of now it's a, it's a, 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 another love story. It's like uh, 
you know, Astrid's, uh, the saviour, and she was, of course, uh, as much as uh, it took a hell of a lot more than a few months to get over what had happened, uh, Astrid was a mature woman, she was in mid-30s, uh, then I can't believe we've been married nearly 35 years now. Uh, but um, she was uh, my saviour, and uh, th she was... Uh, we got married in the same church as John Lennon and Yoko Ono did in, uh, in Gibraltar. We brought the marriage forward into, onto the, to, to the 29th of December, 88. Uh, our youngest son is 30. He was 30 this week. And uh, my youngest granddaughter was born yesterday. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so, uh, you know, we have, between us, we have 15 grandchildren. Oh, now. wow. A wonderful, wonderful family uh, that uh, are all over the place, but, you know, in between Europe and here, uh, the rest history. But, uh, yeah, it was a traumatic time. and uh, But nobody's life is all plain sailing. I mean, if you... You know, if you're determined to make life an adventure, you've got to be prepared for bumps in the road. And uh, well, that was uh, that was a bit more than a bloody bump, I must say. Looking back and putting it in perspective, it was not something you would expect to happen in the middle of your middle of your life. But uh, we recovered. Yeah, it's you know. I, one of the things about the book that we only probably don't even have time to get into is the, near the end, just detailing all of this, the people you've met in your life, the famous people, the celebrities, the royalties, all of the things you've done with everyone. It's uh, it's a, a life well lived, if I may say. It's a, it's an incredible chronicle, really. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. I must say, it's uh, um, it was uh, <laughs> it was every bit an adventure. I'm cheating because I know the answer to this question, but uh, how much golf do you watch these days, and what do you think of the modern uh, professional golf product? Well, uh, you know, golf's got less interesting as time passed. You know, the men's golf is, uh, you know, I, I think the powers that be have sort of uh, failed in their effort to keep the game, keep the reins on the game. I think a Kushnet run golf. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Titleist and some of his other golf ball people. You know, watching pros hit wedges into 11 or 12 greens around uh, and there's no par fives anymore is it's, it's pretty boring to me. And, uh, you know, they've made the game so much easier for professionals and, uh, the, you know, the, the technology was supposed to be for the benefit of amateurs. and. You know, this, uh, and I know for an absolute fact, you know, Jack and I have discussed it on numerous occasions. Uh, USGA just monitor things. They've never, you know, there's, they, they just didn't step up to the plate when they needed to. And uh, But, um, you know, there's billions of dollars flowing in and, uh, you know, credit to the game for still being one of the few that you can walk the fairways with your heroes and play with them in pro-ams and that sort of thing. Uh, we've still got that going for us, but uh, uh, it's got, uh, it's a bit smash and grab now and uh, it, I'm, not, I'm not thrilled with the, I just don't think it's made the game 
better. How much golf do you play these days? As little as I, uh, as little as I can help. I, you know, I'm, once you lose your suppleness, uh, it, it's difficult to deal with. I'm, I'm obviously a few pounds overweight. Could could do to lose a bit, but you know we've come through this uh, pandemic. Couldn't go out. Lockdown. Astrid's a wonderful cook. What can I tell you? Uh, I live right by the golf course here, which we redid at Bradenton Country Club a couple of years ago, and it was it's a vibrant little club. And uh, I play a bit. Um, my grandsons were over from Germany for giants they are now uh, they're all scratch players uh, I played with them out at the concession the other day um, but I'd just as leave ride around and watch them rather than go through the agony of playing myself it's not pretty what, what I do anymore <laughs> well if you go to the concession that ball's <laughs> going to be rolling back to your feet all day <laughs> if you had one round left to play in your life where would you want your final round of golf to be that's a toughie. Um, probably St Andrews. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's such history there, and uh, it's such a unique, unique place. Uh, 18th Green in the middle of the town. I mean, forget about it. This, it's, 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 it's it. It's the best. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. Again, I encourage the listeners to go check out My Ryder Cup Journey. It's available on Amazon as well as through the publishers Pegasus, Elliott, and McKenzie. I know we shared a lot of fun stories today, but we there's more in the book. It is, it is worth your time, so I highly recommend it. So, Mr. Jacqueline, thank you so much for taking the time to tell some stories, and I'm sure the listeners will greatly appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Chris. Thanks. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, yeah. that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect.